Well, welcome everybody. And uh, we are today coming to our wrap up of our series called Creed, where we have been for a number of weeks, uh, starting last fall, concluding this year, uh, exploring the core of our faith. And we've done that by walking through the historic confession of Christian belief that is known as the Apostles' Creed. And I've told you throughout this series that we aren't studying the creed, but rather we are using the creed uh, to help us be pushed back into the study of God's word. And if you've been here, you know that every week we have together been confessing the creed. And so before we do that today, I want to remind you one more time that confessing the creed tells us that we are part of Jesus' church all around the world for 2,000 years now all across those 20 centuries of time. And one more time, I also want to remind you that whenever we read the creed, it is simultaneously rebellion and allegiance. It is rebellion against the unbiblical ideologies of our day. It's a pledge of allegiance to God and to his kingdom. You might say, some of you, that we are rebels with a cause. And some of you will like that. And our cause is God. Our cause is God's kingdom, and so we live for him, and we fight for him, and with that in mind, would you stand, and we're going to, one more time, say the Apostles' Creed together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, today's message is titled The Life Everlasting, and we are going to be looking at the final lines of the creed, which are, I believe, in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Amen. And to do that, we're going to head towards the very end of the Bible. Uh, we're going to look at the last two chapters in all of the Bible, these two chapters which actually say more about everlasting life, about heaven than any others. And I want to start uh, by reading some verses there. And, and as I read, I just want you to kind of recall for our series um, what I've shared with you a few times, how the, the creed is actually a, a tracing of the unfolding of God's story, the story of salvation and redemption and renewal. It's the story we find in the Bible. And just think about it, what we just read. It, it begins with God the Father who creates all things. He's before all things. And it continues with Jesus the Son and his life and his death and his resurrection, which brings us salvation. And next we have the Holy Spirit and the birth of the church, which is the working out of salvation. And now we come to these Last two lines where God is wrapping everything up, how he is bringing his entire creative work back to his original intention. And so with that in mind, Revelation 21, the first six verses say this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. And I want to pause right there because 
that kind of sounds terrible to Californians, right? Like no sea. But you just need to know that John's language here is symbolic. This is the book of Revelation. It's apocalyptic literature. And, and to first century readers, the sea uh, was not what we think of it as. The sea was dangerous. The sea was a terrifying place. It, it actually represented chaos to them. No one went to the beach recreationally back then like to get a tan. You know, the only time they would go to the coast, to the sea, was when they had to. They did it for, for trade, to try to make a living. To them, the sea was about drowning and about tsunamis and about destruction. So this is really uh, just another way of saying no more death. Verse two, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making all things new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Isn't that an amazing and beautiful description? I want to start by drilling down into this. But first of all, I want to just focus your attention on one single phrase. This is in verse 5 where God says, I am making all things new. Just six words. So important. Let's just say them together. I am making all things new. I want you to notice this is not I am making all new things. You see the difference? You know, for years, I, I, I thought that's what the Bible was saying, that one day, one day God was gonna make all new things and the earth was gonna be totally burned up, you know, obliterated, destroyed forever, and God would start all over again. He would make everything new. He would make everything different, all new things. But that's not what it says. It says, I am making all things new, and it's pointing us to this reality that we see throughout the scriptures that, that God is gonna take what is good about the earth that he created, the, the things that even, yes, we love, and he's gonna redeem them, and he's gonna renew them, and he's gonna restore them. It's actually right there in the text, this idea in a subtle way we don't see in English. Greek has uh, two primary words for new. The first one is the word neos. You know, you've heard that in some cultural references. And that word neos means like brand new or, or younger. And then the other is the word kainos. And this word kainos has the idea of renewal. And right here in this text, the word for new is kainos. In other words, God will renew. God will restore all things. He will make them New. We actually get a picture of this that we are very familiar with. It's the picture we see at Easter. It's what God did with Jesus when he raised him from the dead. He took his son's dead body and he made it new. He didn't destroy it. He, he, he made it new. He gave him a glorified, eternal body. And the Bible says that is a foretaste of what God is gonna do 
with his creation. It's actually a foretaste of what he's gonna do with our bodies, that one day God will take us individually and he'll take our entire corrupted planet totally and he'll make it all new. See, again, we, we talked about this earlier in our series uh, last fall. When we think of heaven, we, we shouldn't think of you know, fog and clouds and, and harps. When we think of heaven, we should think of the most awesome things that God has created on our planet. I think of the Grand Canyon and Niagara Falls and Half Dome and Yosemite Falls, you know, falling, stunning 2,425 feet. I think of the Pacific Ocean. I think of the Sierras. I, I think of orange blossoms and pine forests and beautiful sunsets. And you have your own list, I'm sure. And that, that tug that all of us feel toward this kind of beauty, it's not just an appreciation for earthly beauty. It is actually a longing. A longing for the new earth. It's actually homesickness. A longing for home. For that place you've never been Yet. And you need to not forget this I am making all things new includes you. And that's actually what I'm going to be talking about with us for the rest of our time together. I want to show you from these two chapters four aspects of what you will be like in heaven, what the life everlasting is gonna be like, what your uh, kind of person you're gonna become, you know, your future, your destiny, the life everlasting, you know, four realities for everyone who follows Jesus. So if you have some places to write some notes, maybe you got the app out, you're doing that, you can write these things down. Here's the first thing we see in these chapters that's gonna be true and real about us. We will be totally healed, totally healed. The day is coming when God will heal you completely and everything broken and painful and wounded will be made whole. And doesn't that sound even more amazing after two years of COVID? I've been to two funerals in the last two days. I officiated at one, I was there um, as part of the congregation at another, I'm going to be officiated at another funeral in a few days. Look at verse four. I, I, these, these words are very meaningful to me right now. One of the most beautiful verses in the Bible, chapter 21, verse four. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. I think for all of us, there's something about that image that just touches us very deeply, that, that our God would wipe our tears from our eyes. And I think part of the reason this just goes down to our bones is that one of the first needs that every human being has, you know, when a little baby is born and it's hungry or thirsty or wet or tired or afraid or in pain and, and parents, you know, come and they try to do anything they can to dry that baby tears. You know, for all of us, pretty much, I'm sure that one of the first interactions you had with another human being was someone saying to you, it's okay. It's okay. I know. I know. 
And we, we sing babies' lullabies to soothe them. And have you noticed sometimes our lullabies have some kind of strange words, you know, like the most familiar one in, in our culture, when the bow breaks, the baby will fall and down will come baby cradle and all and the baby's bones will be broken and maybe the baby will cripple for life. I mean, I, how's that one supposed to help? It's a good thing the baby doesn't understand English. And you know, one day we get to a certain age, all of us, And for some of us, it's sooner than others. And we realize sometimes the bow breaks. Bad things happen. Some hurts will not be healed, at least not in this life. And there are people I'm speaking to who know this reality in this room right now. Some of you lost a parent to death in childhood. Some of you lost a parent because they walked out. Some of you were abused. And you can read books and you can go to counseling and I would recommend all those things but for you there may be an ache in your heart that will not go away and it may not ever go away until the day you die. Romans 8:18 It's one of the most staggering claims made in the Bible. Paul writes, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Did you see that? Not just the glory that will be revealed to us, but the glory revealed in us. So you can just make a list of the sufferings of this present time, disease and war and famine and cancer, pain and death and and Paul, Paul was not being glib when he wrote these words. Paul was not writing in a heated or air-conditioned room, sitting on a cushioned chair like you're doing right now. He wasn't writing in comfort. Paul had been beaten and stoned and whipped and imprisoned and shipwrecked, even left for dead. He knew more about suffering probably than any of us. And yet he wrote, not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. And Paul is kind of saying, you know, it's like this, the glory that is to come is so overwhelming that if you put it on a scale and you put the sufferings of the present time on the other side of the scale, he says, your suffering won't even register because every aching heart will be made whole. Every emotional wound will be healed. No more tears because sadness will be gone and not through denial or not through ignorance, but because God will set everything right and he'll do it for all eternity. I mean, does that sound good today to anybody else? Sometimes someone will ask me, you know, Pastor Mike, if all of our tears and our our pain are gone, does that mean God's gonna like wipe our memories, won't be able to remember our suffering on earth? And there's nothing in the Bible that would suggest that. I think what this means is that God will transform our pain into joy. 
And actually, the Apostle Paul used a couple of images in other places to talk about how we're gonna look at our earthly pain in heaven. They're beautiful images, and you really ought to take them in and and let God comfort you with them. The first one's actually in Romans chapter eight. It's in verse 22. It's this, this image of giving birth, of labor pains in birth. And Paul says that life now is kind of like being in labor. And I'm a man, so I I don't wanna speak, you know, with too much familiarity about this, but I have on good authority that labor pains are incredibly painful. But they are almost forgotten, aren't they? The moment you hold that baby in your arms. And it's not that you can't remember the pain. I mean, just ask any mother. It's not that you can't remember. It's just that the joy of new life overwhelms the pain. And Paul says, that's what your eternity is gonna be like. Second image Paul uses is in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 54. And he says, death in that day will be swallowed up in victory. Now, just think about that word swallow. When you, when you swallow something, it becomes part of you. Like you, you eat food, the food you eat becomes you. And in the same way, Paul says, our experiences with pain and death make the end product sweeter and even more beautiful than if we hadn't gone through them. I think most of us probably have seen someone we love go through suffering and, and, and we've seen them grow from it and Maybe you've gone through pain in your life and you couldn't understand the purpose. You're asking throughout this, God, why? But, but already, sometimes, you can look back on that and you can see something of how that pain or suffering has produced something good in you. So if, if already with our limited perspective and our limited time, already you can see some of the good that, that God has brought into your life out of some of the bad that you've experienced, don't you think that given infinite time and God's perfect eternal perspective that you will see a reason for all of it? And how will it feel when we get to heaven and we see how God kept all of his promises and used every moment in our lives to weave his beauty and his glory into us one day? God's gonna make all things new. And that doesn't just mean personally. It's creation-wide. Revelation 22.2 says this about the, the tree of life. It says, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. And that means so many things. It means that all racial and national and ethnic divisions will go away. It means that every individual within those nations will be completely, thoroughly healed. It's across creation if you just take all of this and just for a moment try to get real personal, think right now. Think right now about your deepest hurt, about your worst loss, your incurable wound, whether it's physical or emotional. The biblical hope is, is not that when you become a Christ follower, you will get a free pass from suffering. The biblical hope is that you can trust God today, right now, and you can take your broken heart to him, and today you can keep obeying him, following him, and then tomorrow you can keep on trusting him because, because one day, One day, God himself will hold you close as his child, his son or his daughter, and he will wipe all those tears away. He will say to you, it's okay. It's okay. I know. I know. 
It's going to make everything right. And it will happen. This is what we believe. This is what we confessed just a few moments ago when we said we believe in the resurrection of the body and the everlasting life. We're going to be completely healed. And that's not all. It keeps getting better. The second aspect of your destiny in eternity might surprise you. We will be incredibly productive. Now, this surprises some people because, you know, probably the number one fear that people express about heaven is that heaven will be what? Boring, right? Boring. I heard about these two friends who were the huge baseball fans. And they had had this ongoing discussion throughout their lives wondering about this important question, will there be baseball in heaven? And these guys just knew if there wasn't baseball in heaven, they wouldn't be happy. And so they made a pact together that whoever went first would find some way to let the other one know Is there baseball in heaven? Well, one of them went first. And sure enough, he somehow visited his friend. His friend said, well, is there baseball in heaven? And the friend who had died said, I have good news and bad news. The good news is, yes, there's baseball in heaven. The bad news is, you're pitching on Friday. (laughs) You know? You know, we wonder sometimes, some of us, because of what some people like standing here in my place have taught, unfortunately and accurately, that we wonder if heaven's going to be like an eternal retirement village or, you know, if we're just going to sing all of the time. How many of you, when you were kids in church, had somebody tell you heaven's going to be so great, it's just going to be one long eternal hymn sing? Anybody ever hear something like that? I did. How many of you, were, when you were kids, thought that sounded like the most painful, horrible, terrible thing you could ever imagine. You know, sometimes people talk about things really that aren't even in the Bible at all. And if you look at Revelation 22, 5, the end of the verse, there's just one phrase I want to unpack there. It says, and they will reign forever and ever. Now, what does that mean? Sometimes some people who are into seeing heaven as this real passive place thinks it's like it's just sitting on a throne and you know you just sort of wait for stuff to happen while you sit on the throne and the throne's nice but that's still kind of boring but that's not what it means Uh, if you go back to the beginning of the bible back in genesis way back in the garden do you remember that god said that we were created in his image right and he said that we were created to what have dominion to reign over the earth in cooperation with God. And and that was the Garden of Eden. And that means, among other things, that even in a perfect environment, we were made to work. We were made to be fruitful. We were made to be productive. We were made to, to, to reign. And that's the reason why every single one of us has this need to contribute, this need to be creative, to do worthwhile work. It is a God-given desire, and that God-given desire will not vanish in heaven. Instead, it will be finally and fully expressed in heaven. Your your gifts, your abilities will, will be fully and finally realized. It will be productivity and creativity without all the junk without all the sin that comes along with work here on earth. I'll show you a 
couple verses. Revelation 21, 24 says, and the, the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. And that means into the new Jerusalem. Well, what does that mean? You go to any museum today and you're gonna see you know, the splendor of kingdoms. There's art, there's creativity, there's glory. You know, maybe the most famous museum in the world is the Louvre. And uh, like a lot of other famous museums, that used to be a palace. It used to be part of the splendor of a kingdom. And, and what this is telling us here in Revelation is that the best parts of the splendor of the kingdoms of earth are gonna be brought into the new heaven, the new earth. I, I can think of a lot of ways to think about that, but maybe if you think musically, it's, it means there's gonna be you know, better Beethovens and, and better Beatles and, and better Biebers for all of you believers that are out there. And, or if you don't like Justin, better Beyonce's. You know? um, see, in heaven, all of our gifts and activities will finally be fully actualized. In, in heaven, you will be involved in the beautiful words of one writer in this, this ceaseless creative activity with Jesus and his friends. And it's like Jesus is gonna say, hey, Steve or Sarah, what do you think we should do? And then you will answer with creative genius and unique wisdom and stunning insight. And you'll say, well, of course, I'm not omniscient, but I think, and you'll just say whatever you think. And Jesus will say, that's a great idea. Why don't we do that? Dallas Willard uh, was a philosopher, and he put it like this, and you'll understand the philosophy part when you hear his description. He said, you will know fullness of function, the unending creativity involved in a cosmos-wide cooperative pursuit of a created order that continually approaches but never reaches the limitless goodness and greatness of the triune personality of God. And if you get that, you'll go, that's exciting, because it really is. And if you don't get what he said, just trust me, I'm your pastor. Um, it's good. There's another passage. This is in the book of Isaiah, and Isaiah has some wonderful uh, passages about eternity. Um, this is Isaiah 65, verses 17 and, and 25. Great picture. It says, behold, this is God speaking, I will create new heavens and a new earth, and, and what will we do there? Well, they will build houses and dwell in them. There's gonna be some amazing houses, right? You, you thought you built your dream home. You haven't built it yet. They will plant vineyards, and they will eat their fruit, and the vision of eternity is not just eating the fruit. How about this? this is earlier in Isaiah. Isaiah 25, 6 says, On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food. Notice, rich food, not low-sodium, fat-free, flavor-free food, rich food, rich food for all peoples. Everybody gets to eat it. A banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. And some of you are just listening for the first time in this sermon. <laughs> now we're talking. That sounds like heaven. You know, it's uh, interesting. One of the things that really surprises a lot of people is how when the Bible describes heaven and eternity, it's so physical. Now again, and we talked about this earlier on in another one of the messages in this series, the, the Bible shows us that our resurrected bodies in eternity are gonna be like Jesus' resurrected body, which was actually physical. The disciples actually were able to touch Jesus after he was raised from the dead. 
We're gonna have a material existence. C.S. Lewis in the last book of the Chronicles of Narnia is trying to capture all of these glories and here's what he writes um, when the characters in his story die and their life in heaven begins. He says this, the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories and we can most truly say that they all live happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world had only been the cover and the title page, and now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Don't you love that? Totally healed. That's what's gonna be real for us. Incredibly productive and it keeps getting better. How will God make us new? Here's the third thing I want you to see. We will be perfectly holy. We will be free from sin. We'll be morally flawless. And maybe you say at first, well, that doesn't sound that exciting. Well, I may have a quick show of hands just to kind of frame it for us. How many of you have at least one bad habit that you would like to change. Would you just raise your hand? Maybe, maybe you don't, if you're honest, you guys said, but I mean, the person next to you has several serious ones they need to deal with, and you know that, right? I started pastoring now over 35 years ago, and you know, sometimes back then, I think I thought that by the age that I am now, um, in my, my late 40s, I <laughs> started early. But I thought I would be pretty much, you know, there. I would pretty much have this whole discipleship, spiritual following Jesus thing kind of kind of nailed, that I would be completely mature and that all of the spiritual struggles that I had back then would not be issues now. And my wife tells me regularly that that has not happened. <laughs> um, and she's right. I mean, does it ever bother you how slow your spiritual growth seems to be sometimes how hard, how little progress you feel like you're making. Have you ever found yourself asking yourself the question, am I really getting anywhere? Well, guess what? In eternity, you get there. Revelation 21, 22 is so interesting. It says, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Now, you might not first get what's going on here, but if you put yourself in the shoes of someone in the first century reading this for the first time, so many of them were Jewish, and for Jewish people, the temple was the place where the Holy of Holies was, the, the, the place where people went to meet God. It was this sacred space. It was a, a place apart, and they could not imagine life without it. But now the apostle John is saying, there is no temple why? Well, the answer is there's no need for a temple anymore in heaven. And the reason for that is there is no distance anymore between God and us. And the reason for that is that we're now perfectly holy as God is perfectly holy. His dwelling place is with us because we are now fully like him. And what God is saying is I am making all things new and he includes in that you. 
I mean, just think about it. You will have a new mind. And the only thoughts that will ever pass through your mind will be thoughts that are noble and loving and good. Aren't you tired of the angry thoughts, the hateful thoughts, the lustful thoughts, the vengeful thoughts? Only good thoughts because your mind will be new. You'll have a new mouth. I mean, how many of you cannot wait until you have a new mouth and the only things you ever say will be encouraging and uplifting? You're gonna have a new heart and your new heart will love God and other people as effortlessly as your heart is beating right now. It'll all just be part of your new nature. God will take away all the sin and you will be free, free to love God, free to love God's creation, just free. Morally flawless, completely holy. And then there's one other set of images we see that we will be completely fulfilled. Listen to Revelation 22, verses one and two. It says, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great streets of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life. I'm gonna get back to that. Bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. Now, just try to take in this picture and then try to imagine what it would have meant to people in those days who, who lived not as we do in a time of abundance, but in a time of scarcity. It's a very, very dry region in the Middle East, not much water, crops harvested only once a year. I mean, you think you're having problems with our supply chain now. They didn't have a supply chain. I mean, it was like pretty much permanently broken. They just lived in times of scarcity And so the picture being painted here is this, and you should write it down and think about it. The picture that John is painting is this. There is no want. Water flows ceaselessly. The harvest happens ceaselessly. No no long months without water or fresh fruit. No scarcity. And even though we live in a culture of an abundance, is so, this is so huge for us today. I mean, have you ever wondered how, how we could have so much and never have enough? If you've never really asked yourself that question, I will tell you, you're an unhappy person. If you've never really grappled with that, how could we have so much and yet so often we don't have enough, we think? I mean, our lives, our lives today are like this, this crazy, never-ending chase after com- contentment, right? I have a question for you this morning. Who is, who is more content, the, the man with 12 kids or the man with $12 million? The answer is the man with 12 kids because he doesn't want any more. You know, our, our lives, they really are this battle all the time for contentment. And the reality is, I mean, let's just be honest with ourselves. The reality is we have so much 
And yet, and yet, we cannot seem to stop thinking that more and more would somehow be enough. More money, more stuff, more pleasure, more security, more experiences, more beauty. But have you ever noticed it's never enough? And some of you are here today. And the truth is this. You are deeply discontented in some area of your life. And right now you are being tempted to try to satisfy an appetite in a way that is not honoring to God. Some of you are discontented racial, uh, relationally and, and you are close, so close to walking over sexual boundaries that you know are wrong. You're tempted to cross them or maybe you've already crossed those lines or maybe, maybe you're here and you feel empty and you would truthfully probably do just about anything to try to fill that emptiness. Substances, shopping, eating, overworking. And the truth is, the truth is, following Christ means that you'll have to say no to some desires right now. And some of you today, honestly, you need to do that, you need to do it. You need to decide right now, some of you, there are appetites I wanna gratify, there are some desires I have that I wanna fulfill, but I know it would bring dishonor to God, it would be destructive to his church, it would damage me and the ones that I love, and so I'm gonna say no. And I wanna challenge you, if that's you, will you do that? Will you decide right now? But I also wanna encourage you that if you will, There is hope because the day is coming when you will be utterly satisfied. And this really matters right now. This morning, just a little while before I came, I felt like the Lord gave me this next part. I had to kind of stick it in at the end, so I'm highlighting it because I think it must be for someone. Our, Our heavenly hope of being made new and being fulfilled completely, here's what you need to see. It cuts the nerve of every temptation to sin. I mean, just think about it. Everything we might be tempted to do right now that we shouldn't do in hope of fulfilling something that we think somehow we're missing out on, God promises that we will receive all of that and infinitely more and so much better and that we will experience the perfect version of whatever we're longing for, whatever we think we need, we'll have it all and we'll have it perfectly in eternity. I mean, just think, just think of this picture that we've been looking at of the future. I mean, all that we've looked at this morning, does it remind you, has it occurred to anyone here uh, of something maybe that they've seen before? And, and where I'm pushing you back to is the beginning of the Bible because as I mentioned earlier, the Bible started way back in Genesis in a garden, in the Garden of Eden. Right at the center of the garden was a tree. What was that tree called? It was called the tree of life. But then because of human rebellion, because of sin, that perfection was shattered and we were forbidden access to the tree of life and death entered the world. And here we are. But what do we see here at the end of all time? It says on each side of the river stood the tree of what? The tree of life. 
And see, the big idea here really is that the Bible comes full circle. We're back in the garden again. We're living with God again. We have access to the tree of life again. Show of hands for this one. Anybody remember Woodstock? They actually say if you remember Woodstock, you weren't there. Um, I'm actually not talking about that Woodstock. I'm talking about the song Woodstock and kind of an interesting song. If you remember it, part of the lyrics say, we are stardust, we are golden, we are trapped in the devil's bargain. We have got to get ourselves back to the garden. And there is this universal human longing, even from people who are not Christ followers. It's there that somehow we know, we know it, it, it used to be better and we want to get back to that beautiful original state. Now, this song gets that longing right, but what it gets wrong is what we as human beings always get wrong is that we can, as the song says, get ourselves back to the garden. We can't. And the reason is we're the reason we're not in the garden. See, the good news is that God wants to get us back to the garden. He went through incredible links to make that possible. Look at this invitation, Revelation twenty two seventeen. It says, it's almost the very last verse of the Bible. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty, come. And let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life Look at that carefully. Does it say, let the one who worked real hard to be a good person prove themselves worthy come? No. Let anyone who hears come. Let anyone who wishes, if you want it, if you're thirsty, come. Just come and take. And the reason it says that is that Jesus has already paid the price and made the way. Jesus opened the gate again by giving his life on the cross. And God's goal for you is not to bring you, you know, to this land of clouds and fog, you know, this forever in heaven, this kind of ethereal place. God's goal is to bring you back to the garden, to a physical, material creation, thoroughly made new, thoroughly healed, perfectly Holy, a garden. That's what we confess when we confess the creed. Now, real quickly, with all that in our minds and our hearts, I wanna give us a clarity, balance, counsel, reorientation that we've been talking about each thing. How does the creed teach us in these areas? First of all, clarity. See, the central hope of our faith is that all of us who trust in Jesus will be raised from the dead and will one day at the consummation of all things receive perfect restored bodies and we will then live physically forever in God's presence and we'll live there on a renewed and restored earth. It is real material life, just perfect, just forever. And we need to be clear on that. That's what eternity is. Second, balance. See, when we believe and rest our lives on these, these truths, these realities, then we can live knowing the best is yet to come. And if you're the kind of person that hears a phrase like that and you go, unrealistic, then you need to tap into the hope of heaven and eternity. And this brings balance to our lives. Here's what I mean. This means you can enjoy this world because God made it. It's his creation. 
but you don't have to be desperate or frantic in your enjoyment, which is how our world is. And I'll give you a couple of things. You can write this down. Um, and, uh, and some of you may not like this first one, and I hope you'll hear it how I'm saying it, but it's this. Just get rid of your bucket list. Do you understand that the whole idea of a bucket list is a pagan idea that underneath it says, this is your only shot, better do it now. I mean, how can, how can Christ followers have a, a bucket list with, with that mindset? You know, it's the things that you do before you die because you have a chance, uh, you, have the, you have the idea that you, you, you'll never get to do them again. And I wanna tell you, please hear me, that is never true for the Christ follower. See, when Jesus says he's making all things new, doesn't that include the mountains and stars and rivers and oceans and lakes and planets and animals and culture and art and music and architecture and the extreme sports you never got to experience on earth because you were just too chicken? I mean, it's really about everything. For those of you who are single, the joys of marriage and family will be in some way even more greatly fulfilled there. Revelation 21, 26 says, they will bring into heaven the glory and honor of the nations. And that has to mean the best of, of culture. That means the best Mexican or Indian or, or Thai food. It means the best Mediterranean or mission revival architecture. It means the best of Renaissance paintings. It means the Dodgers will never win a game ever, ever again. I mean, you add to your list. That's on my list. You know, the one thing, the one thing that we can't do there, that we can do here, is tell people about Jesus. So if you want a bucket list, why don't you put that on your bucket list and give your life to that, to you know, pursuing uh, people for eternity. Put winning people to Jesus on your bucket list and make the last chapters of your life, however many God gives you about that, instead of something you're just gonna get a better version of in heaven. Third is counsel. How does this teaching counsel us in living now? I mean, I want to tell you, there's so many things we, we could have said, I could have said, but a couple of things I want to share with you. Here's the first one that'll help some of you a lot. Uh, stop being depressed about aging. And you know, some of you are really bothered by this. It depresses you to watch your beauty fade because like you didn't have that much to start with and <laughs> like me, <laughs> You know, it's hard to feel your body decline and, and you're fighting it. And I'll be honest with you, sometimes it's not pretty to watch you fighting it. And I, I kind of get it. I mean, I'm actually 61 for those of you who are confused by what I said earlier. I mean, you know, sometimes I wake up in the morning sore and all, all I did the night before was sleep. <laughs> Sleeping made me sore. What's up with that? <laughs> well, beloved, I have good news. There's a glorified version of our bodies that's waiting for us. It's coming. And so we should be stop being depressed about passing our peak. You're never gonna pass your peak. It's just gonna get better in eternity. Second thing, and this is for younger people who aren't worried about the aging part yet, teach your kids to look forward to eternal life. Teach them that for all that they love on earth, they're gonna have a better and heavenly version in eternity. You know, sometimes parents say, maybe you said this, you better enjoy this now because you won't have it in heaven. 
because it's gonna be boring, kids, so go read some Bible verses. No, it's all gonna be in heaven, only better, only perfect. So teach them they have a heavenly father of endless goodness and creativity. Help them imagine, I don't know, what, what's candy going to taste like in heaven? Let's teach our kids that God is the giver of every good and perfect gift that eye has not seen nor ear heard nor has even entered into the heart of a child what God has prepared for those who love him, that he is the giver of every good and perfect gift and that they can trust him not only for death but in every day of their lives. Finally, reorientation. Reorient your life from this world's false hopes to our better and perfect future hope in Jesus. And I I just want to ask you to think about this question as we close. Why do we want all the things we want? And I want to say to you, you need to understand what it is you're longing for. C.S. Lewis once said that the fact that we long for something beyond the grave is a strong indication that that thing actually exists. And he asked the question this way. He said, do fish complain of the sea for being wet? Or if they did, would not that fact strongly suggest that they had not seen or were not destined to be aquatic creatures? He said, we long to step out of the sea of time onto the land of eternity. And doesn't that show that we were created for eternity? Lewis also said these famous words, if I find in myself a desire which nothing in this world can satisfy, the best argument is that I was created for another world. You know, some of you here right now, you actually, you really honestly struggle to believe and maybe you think this whole message is kind of just wishful thinking, you know, that makes some people feel better. But I want to challenge you today. I want you to wrestle with the fact that there is something in you. I know it's in you because God created you. There's something in you that knows that you were created for more than simply surviving and procreating. That love you feel, that longing for meaning that all of you have. These are not just illusions created by chemicals in our brains that are programmed by you know, evolution just to ensure survival you know, in us to help us propagate our DNA into the future faster than our neighbors. So you need to quit telling yourself that it's courageous to embrace the meaninglessness of life. You need to realize it's not so much courageous as it is unnatural counterintuitive that you are suppressing and that you are shoving down what you know, what you know in the core of your being is real. So you long for meaning and you long for love and you long for eternity because you were created for all those things by an eternal God and you will be satisfied only in relationship to him. If I find in myself a desire which nothing in this world can satisfy, the best argument is not that my brain has evolved an illusion of consciousness. The best argument is that I was created for another world. And this is our hope. This is what we rest our trust in. This is what we believe. I'm gonna encourage you to bow your head right now. We're gonna pray together. Father.